This episode was recorded before April 1st, 2022, when Danielle Smith announced her candidacy for the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. Evolution has made us really complicated, but also interesting. And I think this, we're back to kind of libertarian perspective. This is where allowing for that lots of variation across humans is so important. Um, so again, this, this sort of theology and economics is that your preferences are stable. Hell no, the neuroscience is completely opposite of that. Hi there, it's Danielle Smith, and welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. You have probably seen his very popular TED Talk from about a decade ago. Lots of work has been done in the meantime, but I'm excited to be talking today with Paul Zak. He's professor of graduate studies at Claremont University. Do I have that right? Professor at Claremont University, at Claremont Graduate University, and his profession is the uh, economics and neuroscience. And it's sort of an interesting way of us getting into a new topic because uh, in this, normally we talk straight about economics and empiricism, what you can measure. It's a very, it's 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 very uh, logical and rational. But today we're going to talk a lot about emotions and how you have found a way to measure this uh, the response of individuals in society of uh, measuring morality it almost seems like it'd be impossible to do but i'm delighted to talk to you a little bit about this and i i just want to get a, a sense of where you began how did you how did you get attracted to this field of study uh great question thanks Danielle. Uh, pleasure to be on with you you know, if we, in economics, the sort of standard approach is, is called reveal preference. Have I observed you enough that I can intuit or figure out what your desires are? Uh, and if you ask people, again, there's this sort of theology in economics that you know your own preferences, but in fact, there's just copious evidence against that. Um, so if people are so smart, why do they make poor decisions, right? And so that was kind of the entrance to bring in uh, these transdisciplinary fields to help start neuroeconomics, neuromanagement. Uh, neuromarketing was to really measure brain activity while people make decisions to understand not only if those decisions could be improved, but why people are making different decisions, where that variation comes from. And this really speaks to me, to the libertarian philosophy, which is the average in neuroscience is swamped by the variation, right? The average is almost not meaningful. So where's that variation come from? Uh, it could be very simple things. Uh, you like chocolate ice cream, I like vanilla. Or it could be really complex things like how we put people together in an office to work. Can we talk a bit about um, the theory of moral sentiments? Because it's a, a work of Adam Smith that I kind of put off to the side because I thought that's not really where the bread and butter of talking about free enterprise economics comes from. And yet in watching what, what you've said in your, in your video and in your writings, this is really foundational to how Adam Smith developed the wealth of nation and his theory of how economies worked. And I, I, I want to see if you can draw that connection for us so that I understand why it was so important for that to be the start point. Right. So Theory of More Sentiments was written about uh, 15 years before The Wealth of Nations. At the time, it was just a huge success. It was really the mm -hmm. first book 
to clearly lay out a system of morality that did not depend on um, a God uh, influencing people's actions or, you know, eternal retribution. Um, and so it, uh, Smith was a great observer of the humans and it laid out um, a theory based on what Smith called uh, fellow feeling, we would call empathy. So it's the claim in the theory of moral sentiments is the reason that most of the time, most people don't hurt others, even strangers, is that if I have empathy, I will feel bad if I hurt you. I don't like pain. And we know a lot about the neuroscience of pain. I could talk about that, social pain. Um, and so generally we have this bias towards being nice to each other. So what it means from a policy perspective is I don't need a policeman at every corner. It also means a lot of, again, the kind of deep assumption is economics uh, that everyone is self-interested. It's all about me and I'm going to take every advantage. Uh, in fact, I'm stupid if I don't take all the, the, you know, the money on the table. And yet what we see in human life is that lots of sharing, lots of cooperation, lots of deferment of gratification. Sometimes people take taken advantage of high degrees of trust. And just from a societal perspective, work, you know, we've done the last 25 years, high trust uh, countries grow faster, they have higher standards of living, people are happier in those countries, they're objectively healthier. So these are the Norway, Sweden, Denmark, um, US is kind of in the middle, Canada's a little above the US. And so, you know, this is really interesting, right? It says that we can live in decentralized societies because we have this internal mechanism that most of the time prevents us from hurting others. And then the work we've done in my lab uh, really elucidated those key internal mechanisms in the brain that allow us to ask interesting questions like, when does it fail? What promotes uh, appropriate social behaviors or moral behaviors? Uh, where does criminality come from? Uh, why are most criminals young males? Uh, why do men after 30 almost never engage in criminal activity unless they have a history of that? Uh, these are really interesting questions that the science has really developed because there's a tool to ask about these mechanisms for the, the sense of empathy that keeps us embedded in community. And so just to finish that off, we're social creatures. Neuro, neuroanatomically, we are social creatures. Our brains are, are primed to engage with others. It's not unnatural for us to cooperate is, is exactly what we do. We are built for it, we evolved for it, we're good to go on cooperation, but I do wanna cooperate with people that appear to be safe or trustworthy or cooperative. So we have to have something in our brains to live in Toronto or New York or Los Angeles that lets us know, oh, this person, uh, Danielle, appears to be safe, I can interact with you, and your producer, Drew, clearly a sketchy woman, I've got to avoid her at all costs. Right. So how do I do that? That's the only way I can actually live in big societies. So um, there was a mutation in the brain about 200,000 years ago. We could talk about that. But basically, we evolved to be hypersocial creatures. And Smith really nailed this without knowing the science. I think I might be hung up on my paradigm from how I grew up. Um, I call myself a lapsed Catholic. And yet it, you sound the way you describe that is that Smith was developing a morality that was divorced from religion. So maybe we can just unbundle exactly what we're, we're talking about. Because when I think of morality, I think in terms of vice and virtue, but I also think in terms of social of, of harm to others. So um, when, when we're talking about morality in this context, I'm just going to put the seven, I wrote them down, the seven deadly sins are pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. 
And then when you talk about about the uh, the crimes that you might commit against somebody, so harming another person, those are more harms to yourself, harms to another person, or you know don't you don't want to cheat or lie or steal, don't want to covet your neighbor's stuff, you don't want to murder. What what realm are we talking about? Is it both? Is it vice, or is it the harms that you might cause somebody else? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way we study, study this in the laboratory, us, us and other people, is first of all, behaviorally. So there's there's no top down. So uh, you can map the seven deadly sins into behaviors that are asocial, right? They are not, they don't keep you embedded in community. And again, as social creatures, we need to be embedded in community. So if I engage in any of those seven deadly sins, I will be ostracized from my community. I'm not a cooperator. I'm not a key member. And if you're ostracized, you die if you're a social creature, right? Hermits are extremely rare and most people who isolate themselves uh, die young. So loneliness is, is really a problem. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, poor mental health, poor physical health. Uh, so you don't wanna be isolated. So we work very hard to sustain ourselves in community and avoiding those seven deadly sins mean that we are pro-social. So I'm investing in relationships. Again, this gets back to Adam Smith and also my work, right? Which is that investment has great value, has a cost, time in and you might take advantage of me or hurt me. But again, we have this thing in our head that lets me discriminate between person who's likely safe and likely unsafe. So this can be taken advantage of by psychopaths, by con men, right? In which you can play the role of being a trustworthy person and then harm somebody. And so again, we can, I've worked on the science of that as well. So that's also interesting. But for most of us, if you smile at me and you're friendly and you know, my brain goes, oh, yeah, Danielle, she's fine. She's cool. So I will cooperate with her unless I get a signal that I shouldn't. And these signals are unconscious. And so we've done many, many experiments where we have uh, asked people to evaluate others and, you know, like, oh, this person seems fine, but your brain, unconscious parts of your brain will know that, right? So we, we ran a study very recently, published in last month, in which we had a very high stakes share the money task, $530 on the line. People could talk beforehand. We measured about a dozen neurologic signals. And everyone said, what are you going to do? I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to cooperate. It's going to be great. So no one said, no, I'm screwing you over. Like, you know, social creatures just don't do that, number one. Number two, about the 30% of the people actually did screw over their, their uh, collaborators. So they made decisions in private. They made them sequentially. And those who did, even though they were chatting, like, I'm going to cooperate, their brain signaled that they were going to cheat. So they had this big stress response. They know it's not the right thing to do, but there's a lot of cash on the table. And interestingly, those people who did cheat their partners were measurably less happy. They felt bad about it. Right. So that's something that psychopaths don't get. And we've, I spent a lot of time studying psychopaths. So again, we're back to Adam Smith. We have this mechanism that goes, what's the right thing? Cooperate. And then second, if you do cheat, then you have this negative feedback loop that says, oh, you did something wrong. So there's evidence that social pain lasts longer, twice as long as physical pain. Right. So our brains are training us to avoid these bad behaviors, these asocial behaviors. We could call them amoral behaviors to keep us embedded in community because that's how we survive and flourish. Can you go back and talk about what happened 200,000 years ago and why we developed that? Because I, I remember reading recently 
that one thing you would never see in say among chimpanzees is two chimpanzees would never cooperate to carry a log, which I thought was a really interesting way of differentiating how that spin-off branch went in a different direction than we did. But I don't know if I know why. Why is it that uh, that we developed that that mutation? Yeah, in fact, it's worse than that. Two two chimpanzees from different troops will see each other. They will have a battle to battle to the death, right? So. Humans will do that, but rarely. We often will find, oh, hey, you live in Canada, I live in the US. Oh yeah, we should hang out or do a deal or whatever. Like we have the, the mechanism for that that chimpanzees don't, even though we share 99% of our genes with them. So this mutation about 200,000 years ago um, was associated with a hallmark of mammals, which is live birth and care for offspring. Um, and that is associated with a number of factors, but uh, primary, primarily, primary among these, I can't talk, uh, is the this uh, neurochemical oxytocin. So all of a sudden, 200,000 years ago, some homo sapiens got a lot more oxytocin receptors in the front of their brain, and that created a network in which they were more sensitive to social information. They were better at reading the people around them. And what that led to was conglomeration around 10,000 years ago when this mutation had spread into civilizations, where now I could live and work in societies that are not kin-based. So we got to grow. And once we have growing, growing, then you have specialization of labor. And now you have the generation of surplus. So all of a sudden now, we're not depending on hunting and gathering. We have people who are specialized in particular tasks. We have trade. And how do I not get cheated? Memory and talking, right? So we have long memories. So Bob, the fisherman, you know, I give him some of my, uh, I don't know, doodles on my paper to give him fish. He screws me over. Now I'm going to have a real uh, lively conversation with the rest of my civilizations. Do not trade with Bob. You should avoid him at all costs. And, and maybe we'll punch him a couple of times in the face. Right. So there's this there's this uh, enforcement mechanism. So um, anyway, that's that's basically the base of it. So now we all have this mutation. We're all super sensitive with a couple exceptions to social information. Huh. Those exceptions include people with uh, autism, severe autism in particular, and as I mentioned earlier, criminal psychopaths. So we've shown the psychopaths lack the this system for empathy, for understanding the emotions of others. And so if you don't have the Adam Smith fellow feeling, it's easy to hurt someone if it doesn't, you don't feel bad about it, right? So um, psychopaths never have pets. Psychopaths don't have dogs, right? If you have a dog, you have to care for that dog. You need, that dog needs you to survive. So for the listeners, if you see someone walking down the street with a dog, that person is likely going to be trustworthy, right? If the dog's healthy, right? Because you have to care for the other creature and you got to, you know, put some effort into it. You have to put some emotion. In it. It's hard to have a dog and not attach to it, right? Totally. I've got two of them. So people know when they see me, I'm safe. Can you go back to oxytocin then? Because every time I see that, I wonder if there's a relationship with oxycontin and oxycodone. Are they totally different things? All right. So oxytocin is a neurochemical made in the brainstem. So it's very evolutionarily old. Uh, it, it's lineage goes back to, to fish at least 400 million years. So it's a deep part of our human nature. And it's a chemical that increases our ability to um, understand the emotions of others. And work from our lab shows it does some additional things. It motivates uh, me to cooperate with others. I'll work on your behalf. Oh, that's interesting. So now I have voluntary, I have a mechanism in my brain that voluntarily motivates me to be a cooperative person, even if it um, means I spend some resources on that. Um, number two, it reduces the physiologic stress that we have from being around other people. So again, if we're living around strangers, which most of us do, 
then that um, uh, that balance between vigilance so that you might hurt me or you might not be safe and wanting to interact with and cooperate with you, um, oxytocin pushes us towards the cooperation huh. uh, side. Uh, and then lastly, um, oxytocin uh, activates a larger stroke in the brain that makes it feel good to be good. And this is really interesting. So now when I open the door for you, Danielle, and you thank me, my brain gives me a little boost of another neurochemical called dopamine. It goes, keep doing that. That was nice. That person liked it. And so we learned very, as children, we learned very quickly, you know, if I'm punching that guy in the, you know, uh, in the play, play yard, uh, you know, people are not going to be like me. They're going to avoid me. Okay. That's not good. But if I'm nice to people, my brain goes, oh yeah, guess what? The humans like this. If you want to interact with these humans, then you've got to spend some effort to integrate yourself, to invest in relationships. So you mentioned that it was a mutation that began through childbirth and it sounds, uh, but it's not, it's not just a, a female neurochemical, even though it's strongly connected with childbirth and, and breastfeeding. So can you explain the difference between men and women with this particular chemical? Yeah, great question. So again, this classically oxytocin is associated with uh, birth and breastfeeding and sex. Three activities that are much too messy to run in my lab. So what I'm talking about is um, oxytocin in the brain. So it's a very ancient chemical. So it's actually made and released in the brain. And so uh, it's working as a, a called a neuromodulator or like a neurotransmitter. So it's sending signals in the brain or, or affecting how signals are sent in the brain. Um, so in the brain, it's in influencing behaviors. It's not the binding to the uterus that's affecting those behaviors. It's, it's the um, impact in the brain. Um, and so when we look at the gender differences, uh, at first we're like, oh, come on, everyone's making this. But actually we found now in, you know, 20 years of experiments that literally for every experiment we run, women release more oxytocin when they are trusted, when they are shown a kindness um, than do men. And they're subsequently more generous, more empathic. They're much nicer than men are. So now you know why women are nicer than men, except on yellow <laughs> to blow the bubble here, but, or burst the bubble, but, uh, other factors as women cycle through, uh, through their month, um, estrogen increases the activity of oxytocin, progesterone, which is the hormone of pregnancy and ovulation decreases it. So women are nicer than men on average, but also they're more variable. So you're a complete mystery to us, which is nice. Um, and on, on the male side, one of the primary inhibitors of this empathy, moral behavior, uh, oxytocin effect is testosterone. So if we think of the least empathic people on the planet, young males, right? Mm -hmm. I used to be one of those. I got into a you know, bit of trouble. And uh, because uh, in experiments we've done, where we give men synthetic testosterone, they become overconfident, absolutely selfish, less cooperative, um, you know, on and on and on to make poor, much poorer decisions, financial decisions, social decisions. So these are the, you know, 15 to 25 year old boys. They're more impulsive. They think, ah, you know, God's a gift to the world. So Again, evolutionarily, it makes sense. If, if your uh, testosterone is high, you're on top of the social hierarchy. You're, you are a little mini God. And so, um, you know, you should be, you know, your, your brain tricks you into thinking that you're a God's gift to the world or to women or whatever. Um, so again, I'm not saying I'm making a value judgment here. I'm just talking about the underlying uh, biology of this. But for women as well, if a woman gets a raise and becomes CEO or president of a her testosterone will go up, right? So will a man's. You win a chess match, your testosterone goes up and you become just a little bit of a jerk. 
What what happens then at age 30? You said that it drops off. And you're so right because you look at crime statistics and it's I've watched those over the years. And that's one of the reasons why we've had a falling crime rate decade after decade on average is because once we hit that baby boom surge and we had fewer uh, children being born, we just had fewer uh, of that target age group that would that would commit crime. So I've, I've seen that before, but I don't know why it drops off after 30. Right. So testosterone in males begins to fall from age 30 onward. Hmm. Uh, and therefore, that impulsivity, that um, overconfidence, the crazy driving, the, um, uh, uh, you know, all those behaviors we see in males risk taking uh, begins to decline. And so crime is quite risky, right? You go to jail, you can get killed. And so that risk taking reduces. And look how beautiful evolution is. If you're in a committed relationship, your testosterone falls. If you have children, your testosterone falls. And I only have evidence for myself on this, but if you have girl children, you pick out little dresses every day, you become a girly man, your testosterone goes to zero. And even though I'm six foot four, 200 pounds, I'm the sweetest guy you ever met, unless you're going to steal my kids and then I have to kill you. But, <laughs> so so, so mechanisms. I totally get then um, on the testosterone side, but does it also work the same in men then, as you're saying over 30, your testosterone is falling, but you're having those interactions with your wife, with your kids, does that also increase the oxytocin as well? Right. So this is balancing, right? So as the testosterone falls, there's greater opportunity to release oxytocin. You're exactly oh. right. So now I'm a better nurturer. I'm a better spouse. Um, isn't it crazy? So I don't know how women put up with men under 30 years old or, you know, um, but again, you, if uh, men are doing uh, highly competitive activities, women too, but men, again, the, the men have five to 10 times the testosterone as women. So the, the scale is just much bigger for men. If you're a soldier, if you're a firefighter, if you're doing, your testosterone is up, it's got to be up because a professional athlete, because, you know, that's how you survive in this profession. Now you may have already started with high testosterone, but it's being bumped all the time to help you perform at your best. And then it has a, you know, reasonably long half-life. So it just stays in your system. So mm -hmm. um, politicians having affairs completely predicted from the neuroscience um, athletes, um, you know, beating up their wives, sadly, completely predicted because mm -hmm. They're, they're sort of testosterone poisoned. Again, so I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying it's predicted by the science. You know, you've created a conundrum for me though, because it, you would think that because oxytocin is so important, that attachment is so important, yet at the same time, you've also mentioned that women do tend to be attracted to those hard charging guys who are at the top of their game and who don't seem to have the same level of empathy. How do you solve that conundrum for me? Yeah, so... Uh, work out of uh, University of New Mexico about 20 years ago showed that um, when women are ovulating, they are strongly attracted to um, high testosterone males. You see them long jaw, long fingers, muscular, you know, all the signs, deep voice, um, basically me. No. Uh, and so uh, I'm old, I don't care anymore. Uh, but when they're not ovulating, they actually prefer lower testosterone males who are more likely to maintain a relationship with them, spend time with children, mm -hmm. And so again, evolution has made us really complicated, but also interesting. And I think this, we're back to kind of libertarian perspective. This is where allowing for that lots of variation across humans is so important. Um, so again, this, this sort of theology and economics is that your preferences are stable. Hell no, the neuroscience is completely opposite of that. Your brain at millisecond frequency is helping you adapt to your environment. And again, there's some underlying genetic factors and developmental factors from childhood, uh, but basically we're a very adaptive creature. And so I wouldn't want to do the same thing over and over and over. That's not adaptive. 
So as I have children, as I get older, as I, um, I don't know, go to jail once for a crime, if I'm, you know, have half, half a notion of IQ and not too much testosterone, I'm like, oh, that was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, society said, we don't like this behavior, so we're going to isolate you, a social creature, from the other social creatures. Try that out for a while, see, see how that feels. And so for, for the human brain, um, social isolation is processed just like pain. And so it generates a craving to be around the other people, which again can diminish that desire to engage in these violent, risk-taking, impulsive behaviors. I, I want to explore that more with you, but connect one more thing with me since we started with Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. Connect this again to his most famous line, of course, from the Wealth of Nations, that it's not through the benevolence of the brewer, the butcher, or breaker that we come to expect our dinner, but the matter, but rather the regard of each to their own self-interest, I think is what it is. And so it, that is another thing that strikes me is that a lot of the most successful CEOs do have that kind of hard charging, high testosterone, get out of my way, not the most empathic necessarily, if you read some of the biographies or autobiographies of some of these guys. And and what is that connection there? Um, why why is it that you do have that some of the, the people that we rely on to create the businesses and the entrepreneurship and to and take the risks to allow us to advance in the, in the economy? Why, why does it seem that they have a deficiency on this side? Right. A great question. And I think I only have a partial answer. I mean, part, part of that's genetic. So people who are hard charging or energetic. Uh, so again, we do, we do drug studies. We do studies with synthetic testosterone. I have this funny uh, moral behavior, which is any drug study we do, I take the drug beforehand, even though we have ethics approval. So I can say to participants, look, I took this drug for two weeks. It didn't, you know, it didn't change my life. It should be safe for you. Um, and there's a medical screening. So yeah, testosterone, gosh, it's the wonder drug. So mm -hmm less need for sleep, uh, greater workouts, high energy. Um, let's say my wife was tired for those two weeks a lot. So, you know, it's just, it's perfect. It's the best thing ever. Um, but increased risk of heart attack, increased risk of diabetes, increases risk of violence. I mean, you know, there's downsides too, right? So again, you have people who genetically probably have high testosterone, then they're being lauded socially, which increases their testosterone. They are winners. Um, so I worked with, uh, uh, I guess I can say it now. I work with AIG and their turnaround um, back after a you know, 2008 recession. Right? Remember, they kind of crashed as the largest bailout in U.S. history. And I remember being in a conference room with the C-suite. And these were the alpha males and females. I mean, the women were six feet tall. The, I'm 6'4". The men were like 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, I'm like, these people are freaking crazy testosterone monsters, right? So, you know, these are the captains of industry. But who's going to do this job unless you can just get by on three hours of sleep and have super energy. And I don't want that job. That just sounds awful to me. So um, again, you have to kind of be built for this, but also you're being reinforced as well. I do think that uh, even Jack Welsh, who the, you know, the former CEO of uh, GE who just passed away, realized that this is not an effective long-term mm -hmm. strategy for individuals or for organizations. He said uh, before he died, Management 2.0 is all about trust. And trust means devolving uh, power, responsibility down to individuals. It doesn't mean top-down hierarchy, which he was in favor of. So now we're kind of back to this kind of policy implications, which is we're seeing uh, in my 2017 book, Trust Factor, that organizations that have less hierarchy, that en enable individuals with autonomy and trust are more profitable. Employees are more satisfied with their jobs 
employees take fewer sick days or not being beat up at work and, and you know, diminishing the function of their immune system. Um, and so we're understanding that we're social creatures, but we also don't want to be micromanaged because that removes my individual initiative, my di discretionary effort is the term of art in, in business towards creating value for the organization and me also getting the satisfaction of creating that value. You know, you have, uh, we've opened a can of worms. I don't know if we're going to go down this, this track though, but there's all, there's so much work being done on why it is we have women attracted to certain professions and men attracted to certain professions and why there's inequality. And I think you, I think what we're talking about here may, may form the basis for understanding why some of that is, because if you're attracted to a certain uh, career in your early days, it's going to be heavily influenced by the, by these factors. It sounds to me. Certainly. I mean, you know, a lot of the, the male dominated professions are, are muscle professions, right? They're in construction, they're, uh, you know, things that women just, they can do, but they're just not biologically as good as men um, on average. But you look at finance, banking, women are taking over. Those are, are intellectual. There's no reason, you know, for muscle in that. Um, I think there are also lifestyle issues. Again, you have this, you know, uh, women are, you know, bear the burden and maybe the benefit of having children. And so if you're, running GE and you're never home, uh, you know, it's great. Um, uh, A.G. Lafley, who uh, ran Procter & Gamble for many years, uh, I know a little bit. And when he retired, he, he unretired. He retired and unretired, and then he ran the company again. But anyway, between his first and second retirement, I saw him and I said, what are you looking forward to doing? And he said, being home, eating my own food and just working out. He's a, he's a runner. And so like, like, like imagine, he said, yeah, I'm on the road 300 days a year. Like, oh, how do you have children? How do you have a life? But people do it. Uh, Meg Whitman, who was the the uh, CEO of the group Pay, uh, PayPal and um, uh, eBay, uh, and then later ran HP, she has children. Her husband's a neurosurgeon, right? So, I mean, somehow they work it out, right? So, uh, you know, it's possible for women. I think it's just slightly harder. And I do think we should, my personal view uh, not informed by science is that we should um, respect all those personal opinions. We shouldn't mm -hmm. force um, an equal number of women and male CEOs. If, if women don't want to do this job, or as many women don't want to do it, um, I don't, I mean, there's a labor pre-COVID, there was a labor shortage almost around the world. Uh, Canada, US, Western Europe, Mexico has had a labor shortage pre-COVID and it's only gotten worse. And so there's no shortage of jobs for women, for sure. It's, as you said, it's kind of slotting where you feel like you can get the most benefit and also have that work-life balance. Well, let's let's talk more about the experiment because I'm, I'm not sure I fully under understand how it works. I need you to walk me through it so that I can do a self-assessment of how I think I might behave under those circumstances. Keep in mind, I am the type of person that if someone gives me the wrong change, uh, they over, you know, give me too much money, or if they haven't put something on my bill, I always try to correct it. So that's sort of my my predisposition. So I'm I'm thinking I would do well on your experiment. But for those who are interested in how you've really measured what this trust aspect is, that's the interesting part that you found a way to do um, some laboratory work and test how a person responds in a social environment. So I want you to walk us through the experiment so I can so I can make sure I understand it. How did you set it up? Sure. So we actually stole the behavioral task, stole, I mean, copied the behavioral task from uh, Vernon Smith, Nobel Prize winner economics, uh, big libertarian, uh, and, and was very kind, mentored me uh, for many years. Um, and so this task basically is a, a, a sequential share of the money task in which one person is 
full information, but you're making private decisions. So you can send information, uh, sorry, send money um, by computer to another person. If you do, it comes out of your account, but it grows in the other person's account. So um, again, we so the, do I know the person? So you, you're giving me how much money? A hundred dollars? Let's give you a hundred bucks. And then we're, you're fully instructed. You know, you're going to be matched just randomly to somebody by computer. And you can take any of that hundred bucks out and ship it to some other person that you're matched to, but you can't see them or talk to them. And you only do this one time. So there's no effects of reputation. Um, and so any money. So, so if I, but you're saying it multiplies in their account. So if I give them the entire hundred dollars, they're going to get what? $200 instead? Multiplies by three to make it fun. That's just, which is typical. So you, you give up the full hundred. They know that and it becomes 300 in their account wow. and they get a hundred bucks too. So you both start out with a hundred bucks. You're both completely equal. Um, and then, you know, the computer says, Hey, person one sent you $300. We remind them in total of their account. So now you have 400 bucks. Do you want to send some amount back to that first person? And whatever you send back comes out of your account one-to-one. -one. It's not multiplied again. So let's say I send you back 200 of that 400. We both leave the lab with 200. You made a hundred percent return. Huh. Um, so the smart so move would be just trusting that everybody's going to do that because if everybody transferred money, it would, it would, it would triple and we would all be better off. Right. That was, that would be what you would think people would do. Yeah. Or, or keep all the money. So this, this hmm. the prediction from classical economics is once person two has that money, I call this caveman economics, me like money, money, good, me keep. Right. But what, what the classical economists have missed is that there's a social component there. Right. So it's not that you were sent money. I mean, if we send it by computer, people just keep it because we say a computer's going to send you some money. You can send some back to the computer. Sometimes people do, which is sort of weird because I think they anthropomorphize the computer making a decision. But it's, it's that a human sacrifice to make you better off. So what we showed was that mm -hmm. the more money you receive, which is a signal of trust as a, the second decision maker, the more your brain produces oxytocin and the more your brain produces oxytocin, the more money you return. So I think of oxytocin as kind of melting that self other divide. We come in as a bunch of people. They're all seated at computer stations. I can kind of scan the room and figure out that these are kind of probably people sort of like me. Uh, and um, uh, anyway, so, uh, so it, you know, now it's like, oh, I'm sharing money with my brother or sister, which I would do right? As opposed to strangers, which is interesting. So it turns out that even if you break up groups and work we've published very recently, if I give you a red badge or a blue badge or have you wear a uniform or have you, it's like we had soldiers march in uniform around our lab and that causes their brain to make oxytocin and they had a red badge and they were matched by computer someone with a blue badge and it says, hey, you're matched to a blue person. The standard view is that I always want to benefit my own in-group. But in fact, uh -huh. if your brain makes oxytocin, the system is so blunt that now you're just sharing money equally with people in your in-group and out-group. So oxytocin can really melts that self-other divide. It's like, ah, we're all here together. Let's just hang out. We're absent that oxytocin release. It's like, oh, I'm a red and you're a red. Yeah, we should take care of each other. Even if that group is just randomly formed, again, we, you know, we're unconsciously, we're trying to figure out how do I survive this weird little situation these experimenters have put me in. So anyway, it works, you know, pretty much around the world, although there's a cultural overlay. So if you're like small scale societies that are like lone hunters, they're just, they don't have the, you know, develop the mechanism for sharing. So they tend to tend not to share because they just survive on their own. But it isn't hundred percent in the lab, right? So it sounds like different levels of oxy 
oxytocin allow cause you to, to retransfer a larger amount of money, but there would be some who don't transfer at all because there's no oxytocin that, that is released. Is that what you, what you describe and how, and how significant is that? Oh, such a good question. First of all, I'm going to go backwards. So you said causation. So when we measure oxytocin in blood, we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, we don't know for sure causation. So we've done studies where we infuse synthetic oxytocin safely into people's brains, which has been about 700 times now. And we can actually cause you to send more money, right? Mm -hmm. we, we can actually induce this effect physiologically, so which is really cool. Um, yeah, so so yeah, why don't people be, get this oxytocin effect? Um, one could be genes. It's a small number of people, uh, individuals who, again, have uh, uh, you know, personalities that uh, generate uh, psychopathologies. Um, individuals who have been abused and neglected or abandoned, we've studied in some detail, and they tend not to have an attack system because they just weren't nurtured when they were growing up. So their their brain's not going to waste this valuable real estate for something that they just aren't able to do. It's like it's like you know dropping you into France and go, well, speak French now. Well, you, you've never been trained, right? So you, your brain's just awesome. you can you can maybe get trained up for a while, but you can't be dropped in there. Um, high levels of stress inhibit oxytocin release. And so we sort of know that intuitively when you're super stressed out, you're not your best self, you're cranky and you're not nice to other people because you're just trying to get through the, you know, the next 10 minutes, high levels of testosterone. Um, and so there's a bunch of factors that we've identified that inhibit this, this response. And again, we know that causally because we do studies where we administer synthetic testosterone or we administer a drug that makes your uh, physiologic stress go up. And so. Uh, what I find interesting about the exercise is I guess I, I figured that you needed to have a personal relationship with somebody in order to feel that, that kind of connection. And I'm, I'm wanting to bridge to this because I'm, I'm still not sure how I should be assessing social media now, especially in this post-COVID era where so much of our interactions, I should mention, I'm in a non-free jurisdiction. I know you're in a free jurisdiction. We've had varying degrees of extreme lockdown over the past two years, including Vax mandates, um, people getting fired from their job for not being vaccinated, not being able to leave our country if you're not vaccinated, not being able to go to a restaurant, having to wear masks everywhere we go. So I want, I think we're coming from different contexts. I think I'm still feeling a bit emotionally damaged by that. I want people to know what context you're coming from so that we can we can kind of see what what sort of damage we might have caused to to each other over this last two year period. But you're in a more free jurisdiction, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So. Um... So I lost the thread of your question now. Well, I'm just, no, first, I just want you to describe where you are so that people know that we've had different contexts because it's going to be weird because everybody has had a different experience these last two right. years. And so you're in you're in California, a county, well, which I, I thought California was in a terrible state, but your county was not. Yeah, I'm in a kind of mostly a rural county. So yeah, we're, we've been no mass for a year and, you know, everyone wants to be vaccinated is no, never, there's no cards, there's no whatever. So um, yeah, travel, everything's good. I'm so sorry, Canada, but God bless you. Tell me about it. Yeah, really. I mean, at least we're now beginning to see some of, some of those restrictions lifted. We're not 100% of the way there yet. But, but I think that there's been this perception on the part of policymakers that we can be isolated and it won't matter. We don't need to see people's faces and it won't matter. We can interact over Zoom and it won't matter. We can follow what's happening on Twitter and social media and it won't matter. And yet I'm, I'm beginning to feel having this, had this conversation that it matters a great deal that we haven't had that social interaction over the last two years. I just want to get your take on it. Yeah. So let's go through the science. So first of all, you made a, a supposition, which is reasonable, but wrong, uh, which is 
from the oxytocin, this connection molecule, attachment molecule, um, would be larger response uh, for people I have a relationship with. And in fact, it's the opposite. Hmm. It's a larger response because it's signaling safety for, for a stranger, right? Really? So the brain hmm. is very stingy on using resources. So it's more efficient uh, metabolically for me to use memory that you're a person who's safe. So I've been married 25 years. I see my wife. I don't need to release oxytocin because I have the memory that she's only trying to murder me twice and she's probably going to be safe today. So, uh, right. So I, I don't need oxytocin to tell me that, but I see a stranger. I, I now I have a bunch of competing signals and they're kind of balancing safe or unsafe. So the response is actually bigger for strangers. Isn't that interesting? It is. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you can hack it. You know, it's, it's actually high for dogs for dogs it actually declines less dogs are perfect. Right. Let's just be clear. So, um, okay. So that's the first thing is, is we have a need for that. As I said earlier, when we're lonely, we have this craving for that kind of interaction. We can get some of that from this 2D world that you and I are in now, Danielle, but we can't get as much. We don't have as much bandwidth. I'm not getting smell, which is a very powerful signal for uh, connection. I'm not getting touch. I'm not getting as much body language. And so we have done studies where we've looked at not only oxytocin, but a neurologic state I've called immersion, where I'm attentive to the experience and I value it. So immersion is like social value. How much value do I get from this experience? And that varies between 80 and 50% on uh, uh, 2D, you know, video conference versus in person. So it's half or three quarters as good. Uh, so it's not bad. Your brain still wants it. This is like people crying in movies. Not me, Danielle, because obviously I'm super macho, but I've heard that people occasionally cry at the end of movies. That's neurologically very interesting, right? You're so immersed in that movie. It's as if you are having that experience. So um, we can't have an amazing experience in the 2D world for sure, but it's much more powerful in person. And so if we want people to be effective colleagues at work, if we want to sustain relationships, and if we want to learn better, we actually need to be more immersed. So this neurologic state of immersion uh, strongly correlates positively with information recall for example, from a meeting or from a classroom weeks later. So again, the brain is valuing that experience more if I'm more immersed in it and that's easier in person. We can still do this. It's just a different experience from the brain perspective. And we don't know, sorry for such a long answer, but we don't know if young people who are kind of digital natives, if uh, you know, it's different for very young people versus versus older people. Um, let me change let that. me ask if you'd be if this would be an experiment worth doing. From so what you said is uh, that it's important as a, a bit of a shorthand for how we should interact with strangers, which I guess leaves me worried about young people over the last two years who were just beginning to figure out some of how society works. If if you're not able to see people's faces and you're isolated, are we going to end up with any kind of long-term problems in having those kids able to, to read signals and understand how to interact with strangers. That'd be the thing that I'd be worried about and looking towards, or is this just so embedded in our uh, genetic history from 200,000 years that we'll, we'll, those kids will be able to snap back with, with some resilience. Is that something that would be worth testing and seeing? Yeah. I mean, th I think it'd be, if anything, only short-term, as you said, mm -hmm. this is deep in the, in the old parts, evolutionary old parts of the brain. So um, again, we'll get that, that you know, social relationship any way we can. Here's a here's a quick example that I'll just do with you. If I just show you this, what is that? Oh gosh, I don't know if you can see it, but most people see that as a face. It's just three lines, right? So we anthropomorphize everything. So if there's any human interaction, again, a movie, 
uh, you know, I've cried at, at advertisements like, oh, the dog died, you know. And, and so, yeah, we're, we're just primed for it. We're so uh, essential. But again, we're back to Adam Smith and we're back to freedom of choice. We're going to, again, from the science, we're going to expect lots of variation. People have good days and bad days. People have different genetics. And so we see lots of variation in appropriate social social behaviors, if you will, moral behaviors. Um, and in you yourself will have a lot of variation. So people should not beat themselves up uh, if they're, you know, having a bad day and crying. I mean, apologize to people around you for sure. You know, be a, be a good human. Um, but everyone's going to, you know, you're not even going to know. Your brain swims in about 200 chemicals. We don't know, right? So all of a sudden I'm just cranky to my wife and uh, you know I got to go the next day like man I was such a jerk yesterday I was having a bad day and I'm, I think I took it out on you and you know if you know someone well enough to go yeah you were such a jerk yesterday so yeah thanks for recognizing it. you know you've just you're gonna have to help me process the, this a little bit too because I I joined Twitter in 2009 and I left Twitter in 2020 and I joined Twitter in 2009 because I like the idea of community and being connected and you got things shared and liked. And there was a bit of an exchange. It was all this world of strangers. And then it seemed to have gotten dominated by Russian and Chinese bots. And you don't even know who's real and who's not. And there's anonymous trolls and it became a really hostile place to be. And yet people maintain an obsession. I, mean, I think an unhealthy obsession with something that trends on Twitter or whether they're trending on Twitter or how many likes they got. I've talked to people who got beat up on Twitter and it just tortures them for days or weeks. And, and so I'm trying to process whether social media is a net positive or net negative to society. It, it seems like it should be able to give us a lot of this social connection you're talking about, because that would be where your oxycodone would be released. But or oxytocin would be released, but it does also seem like there's a very strong danger of ostracism, which, as you'd mentioned, ha we have an outsized reaction to from an emotional point of view. So you 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 watch the the development of social media and our interaction to it. How, how does that fit into your work? Yeah, I think there's a real desire for connection, uh, almost as much as we can get, um, but there are connections that are negative. There are people in our lives who are not healthy for us to be around, sometimes in our own families. So I think the same thing on social media. I think that, that need for connection is being fulfilled with social media. But if it's um, you know negative, it's if not healthy for you, if it stresses you out, you should do less or, or stop. And so I think it's you know, kind of building your friends. I think one of the kind of brilliant ideas of Facebook originally was you would invite people to be friends of yours. And I think after a while you say, yes, 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 yes. But you could sort of curate that where on Twitter, um, anyone can follow you, right? So you don't have the right to, I guess you can block them, uh, but you don't have the right to say no. So um, I, I would say a little bit probably is okay, but obsessive amounts, um, you know, go meet your neighbors, go, uh, go meet real humans, go to a bar. Well, once you can do that. Well, talk to me a little more about ostracism, so I understand um, the how 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 we process being excluded from the group. Because it it seems to me that the governments have used that to great power by creating the group of vaxxed versus unvaxxed. And some of the dialogue and language, you might not be seeing it in your county, but in places where we have had that social division and the restrictions, it's actually been used as a bit of a weapon to have one group seem to be on the inside and the other on the outside and genuine ostracism, not allowing people to participate in social activities. And uh, I, I don't know if the, I don't know if the, if the politicians making these kinds of decisions realize what kind of emotional and psychological harm that's causing to a person. But the fact that you said that ostracism is harder 
that social exclusion is harder to get over than a physical pain strikes, it, it stuck with me. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand why that is. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, um, social exclusion is not only painful, it actually activates the, the uh, pain matrix in the brain, mm -hmm. um, but it also is physiologically stressful. So now I've, I'm just more anxious, I'm just more on edge. So I want to be included in something. So again, that inclusion could come from social media, could come online, uh, but even not seeing smiles, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult, right? So if you look at where people focus, we look at the eyes and the mouth, most of us, that's where the emotions are coming from. So if I'm knocking that out, you know, I'm only getting half of that information uh, to see if you're happy or sad and how I interact with you. So um, we really need the social interaction. So again, I think we have to balance that with the need for safety. But if you want to uh, diminish the, or put in fear, I mean, um, you know, not to go too far into politics, but yeah, just, just keep pushing out every day how dangerous COVID is and well, whatever, or, or uh, you know, whatever boogeyman we're talking about. And then, you know, you go, oh gosh, I can't do that. Like you said, I think before we started uh, uh, recording, Danielle, that in the early stages of COVID, there was so much uncertainty. We just didn't know. It was so stressful. And, you know, you weren't sure who to interact with and you had to wear a mask outdoors. It was so scary. And now we know a lot about this disease. Everyone who wants a vaccine has gotten it. Um, so what I found in like when all the stores are closed in my neighborhood, I have a dog. I would go, I started walking my dog two and three times a day because I just like the only exercise before I've been, I built a little home gym. But, you know, but people would come talk to me like with a social distance. Right. I mean, maybe a mask or like they just needed contact, like real in-person contact. And outdoors, again, I'm a safe person because I got a healthy dog. Um, so yeah, surprisingly, and and again, I'm I'm six four, I'm a big guy, and I'd have you know, twenty year old women come on over like, oh, can I see your dog? Hey, how are you? And we just like I met all my neighbors. So I think there's a real need for that. Interesting. So we might see an upside now that the restrictions are easing. You might find that more people want to have more interaction, and there could be a lot of positive that comes out of that. That's a, thanks for for raising that. I want to I want to ask you one other question though, because I've been very influenced by Ayn Rand over the years, and you talk about libertarianism. And one of the things that I'm wondering what Rand would think of our conversation here, because I tend to think of her as completely suppressing the emotional side all about logic and reason and making choices so that you can have a life path that leads to your objectives. And she's actually quite hostile to the notion of altruism, that really you've got to put yourself first and make your decisions around yourself first, because only by being your best self, I, I suppose, can you achieve what you want in life. And, and yet that seems to go counter to our biology. So I'm, I'm wondering how you would fit that kind of rigid, individualistic, me-first, libertarian selfishness into the paradigm we've been talking about. Yeah, even Adam Smith in his two great books differentiated clearly between um, self-interest and selfishness. So selfishness in, in most theological, philosophical traditions is antisocial, is about putting mm -hmm. me first. Now, there is a sense uh, from Ayn Rand that, you know, the plane's going down, put on your, your air mask first, your oxygen mask first, because you can't help anybody else if you're out. But I think there's no best self. Uh, if we look at uh, to the work I've been doing the last five, seven years on satisfaction with life, where does that come from? Primarily, it comes from social relationships. Mm. Health matters. Um, people who are religious are a bit happier. Um, having enough income certainly matters. But the big factor is the value of social relationships. 
And that's, to me, that's an investment. So even if you're the most selfish, uh, ran objectivist kind of person, um, you want to invest in social relationships because it's so embedded in our, our uh, biology. So as an example, uh, some years ago, I turned 50 and I had four surprise birthday parties. And I'm a super nerdy introvert, could spend 12 hours in the lab not talking to anybody. But I did this research. I go, oh, holy, holy smokes, I got to actually get better at what I'm doing. So I started investing in those relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm a better person because of it. I certainly have a lot more friends and have a lot more opportunities to do cool stuff because I know people. So um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of torn. I mean, you've got to um, make sure that you are doing the things that you need, but it's much less about stuff and more about activities and people. Well, it is interesting you should say that because one of the things I've been surprised by is the number of people who seem to be contented with not having the same kind of office environment and social environment and interaction that we had pre-COVID. And I wonder if it goes back to whether you're introverted or extroverted. Did you, did you, did you, you use that as a, a factor when you were looking at people's responses in any of your, in your tests? Do, do introverts and extroverts respond differently? And again, one would think extroverts are just uh, warmer people. Um, no, but we do find that people by personality who are more agreeable release more oxytocin and people who are more empathic, not surprisingly, release more oxytocin. So these are the feelers. They're warm. They have a lot of friends. By the way, their lives are much happier uh, long term. So, you know, I'm not naturally a super emotional, feely person, but I've worked very hard to do it. So again, for listeners, you can get better at building social relationships. There's very good evidence that if you invest in that, then again, it's an investment to me. It's, it's an investment in greater satisfaction in having a rich social life and not just getting a, you know, more stuff. Maybe we know more stuff just doesn't make you mm. happier long-term or more satisfied. I guess that's the question is why does the theory matter in the first place? What is it that understanding how human beings interact, why does it matter? Is it, is it to make us more productive citizens so that we can generate more or have more productive companies so that we can sell more or have happier workplaces so we can attract more workers. How does this tie into how the, the sort of the major ways in which we structure our lives, our, our relationships, and, and most importantly, our business relationships? What a great question. Yeah, I was thinking of, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, he was a socialist, Carlyle, who called economics the dismal science. It's the happy science. It's really about how do you curate your life for greater happiness? And that's the bulk of my professional work has been creating knowledge and technologies to help people curate their lives for greater happiness. So we know from research in my lab and others that employees who have more autonomy or more satisfied with their jobs, they put in more effort and they get the satisfaction from that. So it's really not that acute happiness, some little spike, it's about long-term satisfaction. So when you work hard for something that matters, and that social purpose almost always. So Peter Drucker, one of my colleagues who's now passed away, said at its core, every organization's purpose is to improve people's lives. So embracing that all business is about servicing people to help them get better at something, give them stuff they need, give them a service they need. And you can pay for that. Doesn't mean it's not a moral good if you're paying for it. But when employees understand that what they're doing is important and they're doing with people they can depend on and that uh, you know they can then respond, when they've done something hard, they have that satisfaction so that's important. That's why work is important, not just to be a member of society and be productive, but to get that internal satisfaction. I did something important and useful. Then secondly, outside of work, really those rich social relationships. So people are more satisfied with their lives 
um, when they're married, uh, when they have good relationships with family members, when they have more friends. Um, and so to me, that's, that's a, you could be at the selfish, most selfish person possible, but understanding biology is telling us how to get the most uh, bang for the buck, how to hack these brain systems to really live satisfied lives. And the punchline of that is service to others. Hmm. You, you've put two things in conflict for me. As you were talking, I was thinking of an article that I read recently about workplace meetings. And that there are literally some workplaces where they're spending upwards of 50 to 75% of their time in meetings. And one of the things you just said there about happiness in the workplace is having autonomy. I hate meetings. I mean, I, I got downgraded in my internship at an oil company because I was not seen to be a team player because I just didn't want to go to meetings. I wanted to do real work. And so th there's a bit of a tension there, isn't there? Is that you've got to socialize or be in a social environment in a workplace, but uh, taking collective action doesn't necessarily mean sitting in meetings all day. It means working to a collective goal, but you can do that autonomously. And so I'm trying to, these two, th these two conceptions seem to be in conflict. And I'm wondering if you can sort that out for me. Yeah, they do. I don't think I have the perfect answer on this, but at least in the experiments we've run and the ones I'm aware of from other labs are that people are actually more effective when they're physically together. They can certainly coordinate through video conference or Slack or email or whatever, but there's something that unexpectedly happens when we're just together because it's not scheduled, mm -hmm. right? If we're in the same physical building. And um, that also plays into what we've talked about, kind of emotional wellness. They're just, as a social creature, I need to be around humans. Um, and so, you, you know, you just need that time. And it could be on video conference or whatever, but you kind of need that feedback. I need to be around them. I'm just going to be a better human. So, um, I'm going to feel better about myself. I'll have reduced stress levels. So we showed in a in a study at a pre-COVID in a, a very large uh, company in the Midwestern United States that individuals who uh, worked in divisions of this company, which trust was very high, not only put more, more effort to work, objectively produced more output, but they shed the stress of work faster. Mm -hmm. So I think it's incumbent on... Um, the workplaces as we're decentralizing more and more, which I'm for, to also create physical and emotional spaces so that the office is kind of a social emotional hub. I want to go in because that's where cool things are happening. Maybe I don't have to go every day, but I want those unexpected interactions, bumping into people. Oh, you're working on that. I heard about that too. Or maybe just, did you see that new movie or what you see this thing on Netflix? Right? That's actually really valuable from a brain perspective. And when I have that immersive experience, whether it's around work or not, it means I have this uh, kind of supercharged interaction in my brain. We're like, okay, I'm, I'm in. Now, whatever I'm doing, recreating or um, uh, working is going to be just more effective. So think about, you know, doing a, a sport. I don't know. I used to play basketball by yourself. It's a lot more fun with other humans, right? Even if I'm losing, I'm still just having fun because it's just a interesting interaction. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that you like the decentralized workplace, because I think we're now in a position of tension where you've got employers who want people back in the office, but you've got employees saying, Hey, I'm perfectly productive at home. Why can't, why can't I stay working at home? I think even in Silicon Valley, um, they've realized a lot of those tech jobs don't need to take place in the office. People are moving to lower cost jur jurisdictions and the bosses are saying, fine, you want to move out of this area and it costs less money, we're going to cut your pay as well. So I'm trying to figure out how the the workplace is, is going to change based on the ways in which we've learned that we can work differently. It's, it's been quite a shakeup 
I don't know that anybody would have ever thought we could have done as much work from home as we've been able to accomplish over the last two years. And it sounds like you've got a, a, a conception of it that could be quite balanced, where there's a portion of the work that you do at home, but then there's a reason for why you'd want to go into the, the office and collaborate. Do, do you think that those are, are those kind of workplaces are going to develop? Do you think that there's enough flexibility? I think so. I mean, this was happening pre-COVID and COVID just accelerated it. So we saw you know a lot of large companies shedding real estate, um, yeah. doing hot desking, right? So you have a shared space, you're working at home, you're working on the road. Um, it saves a lot of resources and also reduces that commute time. I mean, the downside is, you know, having not having that clear barrier between um, work and, and social life. So I don't think there's really work-life balance. I think there's work-life life integration. So a lot of people prefer working at night or they work early in the morning and that just, you know, the eight to five doesn't fit their chronotype. And so why should we force people to not do what's best for them or they have children or they, whatever, you know, they want to do something else. Um, and so I think, you know, having that flexibility is good for the individual employee, but also good for the organization and good for society. So as I mentioned earlier, individuals who uh, work in high trust workplaces are you know, objectively healthier and happier. Don't we want that? Isn't that the goal of every, every uh, organized society civilization to create happy, healthy individuals? Um, having said that, again, I think we still want some interaction. So I think, um, you know, as social creatures, we still follow leaders. So if your boss is in the office five days a week, yeah, people are going to start showing up, right? They're like, oh, Bob's in the office. I bet, you know, he's there. So I think, you know, you can do it. But, you know, simple things. Uh, you, we talked about hacking the brain. Um, you know, have uh, pizza and beer on Friday at five o'clock. So a, a lot of the return to work uh, businesses I've been working with, um, they see a lot of people coming in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm. you know, for good reason. I'm like, great, uh, you know, do a do a Friday pizza happy hour. Uh, do a serve lunch like they do at Google, these long picnic tables, and just make it from 12 to 12, 12.30. So you got to get in there and interact with everybody else. So even if you're in your cubicle or whatever, you got to interact with others. So I think you can you can structure work so that people are sort of incentivized to spend more time in the office. But if you really don't want to, you don't have to. Do you, do you think that we're going to have, I mean, a lot of the work that you're doing is around trust and trustworthiness. And I'm, I'm worried we've lost a lot of trust in most of our institutions over the last two years that do we trust our politicians or have we gotten tribal into particular political parties? Do we, do we trust our mainstream media or are we all now going out and finding things on alternative media? Do we, do we trust our hospital system and our medical doctors to, because we, we kept getting, different and competing um, advice. And uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering how, how that would ultimately play out because trust seems to be pretty essential in our human interactions. And I'm, I'm worried that we're in the middle of a, a major trust deficit. And I don't know if you've done any work that can talk about how that, that trust, uh, how to improve that level of trust. Yeah, so what we've seen in most developed countries, uh, certainly North America, Canada, US, Mexico, much, although not all of um, Western Europe is decline in trust levels from the late 60s. And part of that, I think, was just, you know, the the um, openness of the media to begin to show the warts of politicians. So uh, what we're seeing in the data are less trust in federal governments, but um, fairly good trust in, at the local level. And I think that's also a good thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So I understand the local level. I maybe know this person. I've heard the name where, you know, Trudeau, Biden, what the hell do I know about these people, really, right? I just know what the news tells me. Um, but uh, so I, I'm a little skeptical of the, you know, 
the world's ending because we don't trust each other. I think um, it shows that people are thinking critically. Um, even the people don't want to get vaccinated. Think, well, good for you. You want to roll the dice? That's fine. Um, but at least you're, you're using your brain and you're, you're just not following, you know, you're not a sheeple, as they say, you know, you're not just doing what everyone else is doing. So again, I think it's an individual choice. I think we should let people, we should uh, allow people to have the freedom of choice. Otherwise you're living in a dictatorship, right? That's not good for anybody, but it does require some level of trust to go through society. Um, so in the U.S., we've had a, you know, a spike in crime because of reduction in police forces and uh, mm -hmm. just pent up, you know, unhappiness of being at home for two years. Um, and so, you know, obviously if, if I can't walk the streets and feel comfortable, how do I build relationships with strangers? How do I get that oxytocin benefit? So there's a level of kind of stability of the, of the social world that we need in order to have the neural resources uh, to actually engage with others. I, you know, I love your optimism. I, I'm sure that once we've gotten to the same point of freedom that you have over the next year and a half, we'll feel as, I won't feel as gloomy about the future as I, I do right now. But one of the things that I find so interesting in how you're talking is you talk about how, the importance of decentralization and the importance of the individual. And yet it, it strikes me that, that, that we're in a direct conflict with those who believe that you should put the collective first, that if the collective wants you to do X, Y, or Z, then you're a bad person. Like it goes back to the social acceptance. You're a bad person. If you don't follow what the collective wants you to do, you will be ostracized if you don't want the collective to do it. So it seems like we've moved away from the importance of the individual and moved away from that decentralized decision-making. And, and those seem to be pretty big global uh, tensions that are rubbing up against each other. Do we have more and more decisions made further and further away? and putting the collective good ahead of the individual? Or is there some reason why we should want to see more decentralized decision-making and more individualism? I mean, that's where I am personally from a philosophical point of view, but I wonder if societally we're there and maybe in our sort of last few minutes here, if you could just make make a, a bit of, of the pitch about, uh, about that competing worldview and why it is you think decentralization and individualism is is the is the direction that we should be going for human flourishment? Great. Again, such a deep question. So I'll try to be brief. Um, what we're seeing in in for-profit businesses is a decentralization. We've been seeing this for a, a, quite a long time, at least the last decade and a half, in which we're empowering individual employees to make decisions, to have autonomy. Uh, this works in a high trust environment. And at the same time, as you said, at the kind of uh, political level, country level, we're seeing a great reduction in trust. So I think in this case, businesses are leading where we want mm -hmm. to go. As you said, employees can kind of work anywhere if they can, as long as they can be hybrid workers. Um, and so this movement towards greater freedom, uh, at least in the in the US data, seems to be really taking off. Um, I was in um, for a couple of months in Denmark um, this last fall, uh, where I have an appointment and um, I was living in Denmark, totally free place, no masks, mm -hmm. no vax cards, uh, you know, but then different countries in Europe, you know, you couldn't, couldn't even get in without a PCR test. So, you know, but Denmark's great. They're fine. And one of the happiest countries in the world, also a very high trust country. So people pretty much do the right things in Denmark, which is pretty amazing. So as long as that people can self-regulate, which is easier in smaller societies, then I don't think we need the top-down control. Being said that, we are social creatures. We're embedded in social environments. And so sometimes we do have to do what we may not want to do for the collective good so that we all can get along. I don't want to stop at stoplights every time I drive in my little neighborhood, but I do because it's the right thing to do. And God forbid there should be some kid I don't see or something, right? So, you know, 
you have to take some hits. So I, I don't know where that trade-off is, but I mm. do think it's a good thing that people are skeptical and they're pushing back. Um, Friedrich Hayek said, uh, every, you know, 50 years ago, um, if you look at every crisis in history, as an opportunity for uh, for federal governments to grab more power. And so I do think we have, to, we as individuals have to fight back and maybe from a policy perspective and say, no, I don't think in the U.S. there's any constitutional right for the government to tell me I can't go to work or what I can what, put a mask on my face or even to get a vaccine. I think there's no right at all. It's not in our constitution. So, but we've allowed it because it seems like it's probably the right thing to do. But I think we have to push back now and go, no, just not going to do it anymore. So I, there's some fighting that we have to do, right? Mm-hmm. Bring liberty. And I think if we're not willing to fight, then it just erodes down because governments want to see control. And at least I, can, I don't know about Canada, but in the U.S., there are a ton of federal agencies that were set up in the 30s and 40s that should be blown up. We don't need them anymore. There's a lot of corporate welfare. Just get rid of them. Right? Get rid of, but does that happen? No, for lots of reasons that you guys all know. You know, I have to wonder if you look at different economic indicators based on the kind of work that you do. Um, I don't know if there are measures of, they've often talked about how we need to have measures of happiness as opposed to measures of, of GDP. And I, I wonder if there's any advice that you would give on that. Is there, are we measuring the wrong things or should we be measuring something else? It's a great question. So, I, I, you know, happiness and wealth actually run together positively, right? So um, uh, you just have more opportunities to do stuff. So uh, there's work by Danny Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner economics psychologist. Um, so if you look at acute happiness, it tends to peak out when you get about $75,000, $80,000 a year. But if you actually look at satisfaction with life, that just increases linearly, right? So you're just more satisfied when you have higher incomes. Um, and so when you have higher incomes, you can accumulate wealth and then you have opportunities. Um, so yeah, it reduces the stress to think, you know, uh, you know, I can get through this no matter what it is. So um, as you know, you know, decentralized, low regulation, low tax countries grow a lot faster. Uh, and so by having those opportunities, you're able to allow more people to get the benefits both of the economy, but also of the general satisfaction and satisfaction increases uh, your health span, lifespan, reduces morbidity mm-hmm. and mortality. And so, yeah, I think we should be in the satisfaction business. Um, so again, happiness is this acute response, but satisfaction is kind of the adding up of all those extraordinary experiences. So we want extraordinary experiences. We want amazing experiences. And the more we can get them, uh, the, the more satisfied we are with our lives. And by the way, when you're more satisfied, again, your stress is lower. Mm-hmm. You're just a nicer person to be around. You're not so stressed out and cranky. And we'll probably have a longer life with less stress. You know, yeah. I wanted to ask you because um, uh, when I was watching your, your your presentation, which I think has almost got 2 million views from the, the TED Talk you did years ago, I was thinking, you know, I don't know that I'd want to be enrolled in your study because I hate needles. And you had to do a lot of needles, pricking people before and after to be able to get that window where you could measure wow. the oxytocin. But you told me that the, your research has changed quite a bit now. And just give me an idea of, of how you're approaching the, uh, the work that you do and, and give us an idea of the, the kind of things that you're, you're measuring now. Yeah, so we're actually measuring um, um, kind of gestalt brain activity. So uh, less on, so the oxytocin work was really looking for a, a, a lever to explain, if you will, good behavior that really hadn't been there. So bad behavior is so easy to study. If I do that, I can raise your heart rate. It's just a piece of cake, I can make, you know. But like you said, get, you know, understanding and measuring that good behavior trust, generosity, charity. That's the stuff we did for a long time, but that's only part of the picture. Oxytocin is just part. 
Um, so now we're measuring uh, very high frequency uh, electrical signals from the nervous system. And then four years ago, I launched a software company to uh, commercialize and make available these findings, which we can pull data from a smartwatch and apply algorithms in the cloud so that people can actually see for themselves how much they value an experience. And again, the more extraordinary experiences you have, the more they add up and the quality of life is higher for those individuals. So um, applications in simple stuff like marketing and entertainment, but also things like um, online education and K to, uh, you know, for K to 12 students, train corporate training, um, emotion, say we call this emotional wellness. So really having an amazing experience uh, while you're shopping uh, at the movies. Uh, so here's the interesting little data point. Um, I live outside Los Angeles. Um, for the last 30 years, 80% of Hollywood movies have lost money. Hmm. How is that possible that for 10,000 years of storytelling, at least humans do not know a good story from a bad story? Right? I think it's because this creative endeavor is hard and the, the creator himself or herself, the director and all these people kind of think, well, if I like it, everyone else will like it. But actually, that's a very self-focused view. And the whole discussion we've had is about being other focused and the value of being an other focused creature. Um, and so having a technology like, um, you know, how much do people value this movie that I'm creating? Um, that just gets rid of waste because I'm super cheap dude and I hate to see wasted money and time, but also creates a better experience for, uh, you know, the customers of that, the moviegoers. Um, so yeah, let's, let's, you know, develop more technologies to allow people to curate their lives for greater happiness. You know, and I, I, I kind of like that ability. I, I notice that whenever I get shown an advertisement, cause I'm, I'm into the Google products. So I use the Gmail, I allow them to track what I search, but you know what? I get really good ads. And most of the ads that come my way are things that I'm interested in. But some people are very concerned about that level of intrusion into their privacy that, you know, you just went and searched online for a, a home gym and all of a sudden you're getting ads for home gyms. Is there is there any downside of that? Or do you, do you just see upside to that? Yeah, no, there's some downsides. I mean, for us, you know, we're not collecting any personally identifiable information, but if you mine the heck out of this, yeah, sure. So I think as social creatures, we have a primary goal, which is to persuade the other people around us to do stuff. So that's what we do. I want, I'm trying to be nice to you. You're trying to be nice to me. I don't want to be cranky. I don't want to be a bad person. Right. So that's just what we normally do. You don't, I don't have to be trained to do that. Hopefully. <laughs> um, so, you know, if I'm going to create an experience for you, if I am other regarding, if I want to make it great for you, I've actually got to have a technology or some way because people can't tell us if people would tell us the movie was bad in the screeners, then, you know, we would never have bad movies. Right. But people actually don't know because again, we're asking you to report your unconscious emotional experience. Mm -hmm. So kind of back to your earlier question about Ayn Rand and, you know, it's not just cognitive. I think we're libertarians sometimes fail. It's like, it's totally rational. Like if you want to take drugs, you should take drugs. Yeah, except that drugs have a lock-in period, right? Some people get really addicted and their lives are just, lives are ruined. So I think by having technologies that are kind of neural prosthetics, it allows us to begin to say, oh, here's what I want to spend my time. Here's what I really enjoy doing. It also empowers individuals to know their own selves, so, I th so we have clients using our technology um, to help employees perform better. Well, that sounds evil. That sounds mm -hmm. terrible, exploitative. But it actually puts the power in the hands of the employees to say, hey, I measured my immersion at work the last three months, and I love client meetings, and I'm terrible at accounting. I mean, I'm not terrible. I can do accounting, but I, my brain just doesn't like it. So give me more client meetings. And Susan, she loves accounting. Give her more accounting. Mm -hmm. So now I, I've 
learned about myself. So I think it's part of this quantified self movement. And what's more important than finding out what your brain loves, because you don't always know. Well, I have a suspicion if we talk five years from now, we're going to have an entirely different conversation because this field sounds like it's moving very quickly and you must, it, you're, you're at the forefront of it. Do you, you have a book coming out, correct? I do have a book coming out called Immersion, The Science of Extraordinary Experiences out uh, summer 2022. And uh, it will talk about applications of this technology, what we've learned about how to help people curate their lives for greater happiness. Uh, and and the, there's a chapter on persuasion and the last chapter is called happiness. So to me, again, all this social science, all the work I've done and many people have done, and I think the work of the Fraser Institute, all this is about happiness. How do we help people be their best selves, have the opportunity to really flourish? And um, for people interested in that, I think go to the Fraser website for sure. Tons of great stuff there and hopefully read some good books as well. Well, and your book is perfectly timed because we're, we're certainly all needing a dose of happiness after the last couple of years. Thank you so much for the work you do and for the conversation today. It was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. That is Paul Zak. He's a professor of Claremont Graduate University, and his area of expertise is economy and neuroscience. I'm Danielle Smith. This has been Danielle Smith's Razor Forum. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.